Hello folks, and welcome to Wild Angel, the films of Roger Corman, a podcast dedicated to the work of the legendary filmmaker. In each episode, we will take an in-depth look at seminal titles from Roger Corman's filmography. I'm your host, Manuel Canary, film fan and Roger Corman aficionado. Join me in our inaugural episode as we look back at The Little Shop of Horrors from 1960, The Pit and the Pendulum from 1961, and The Terror from 1963. Oh, take it easy, Dracula. What do you think I'm carrying here, my dirty laundry? Where a man-eating talking plant gives homicide something to think about. And I didn't do it. Do what? Whatever. Ever see this man? Man, see picture. Why are you so nervous? Oh, boy, you kiss good, Audrey. Oh, I guess I just have a good kisser. Now you will do as I say. Yes, master. You will go out and find me some food. Yes, master. What's the matter? Don't you like me? Too bony. Too bony? Nobody ever told me that before. Beef is better than veal. Uh, you're such a dodo. Perhaps the most well-known work by Roger Corman, Little Shop of Horrors from 1960 has become a cult movie staple and the inspiration for one of the most beloved musicals of all time. The movie was a follow-up to Corman's black comedy hit, A Bucket of Blood, and followed a similar storyline and was also penned by Charles Griffith. The initial story involved the salad chef who ended up cooking humans, but it eventually morphed into the now-famous flower shop man-eating plant scenario. The story follows the exploits of Nebish Seymour, who finds success and popularity after discovering a unique carnivorous plant, one who thrives on human blood to stay alive. Originally titled The Passionate People Eater, the film is infamous as the movie made in two days. In actuality, it was filmed in two consecutive days and a couple of evenings. Shooting took place in December of 1959 on a leftover set at a soundstage of the producer's studio, now the campus of Jim Henson Productions. Though I've never been able to find out what film or TV show the set was left over from, it was originally used as a set of an office and was redressed as Mushnik's flower shop for this production. For that initial two-day shoot, interior action was filmed similarly to a sitcom, with multiple cameras simultaneously recording the action from various angles. Exterior shots, including the skid row scenes and the climax at the tire yard, were shot on the following two weekends. Actual winos, homeless men, and local children were paid a few cents to appear in the film. The jazzy music score was by Fred Katz, Here's an excerpt from an interview he gave regarding Little Shop of Horrors. Quote, Little Shop of Horrors was taken out of soundtracks I had written for Corman and pieced together by a music editor. So even though my name is on the credits, I didn't actually write music for that particular film. But it is my music. End quote. It was also used in other Corman films, Bucket of Blood, Creature from the Haunted Sea, and Wasp Woman, among others. Yet, it is the only film to have a soundtrack album dedicated to it. 
The part of Seymour was first offered to Dick Miller, but he turned it down since the character was very similar to Walter Paisley, the protagonist he portrayed in A Bucket of Blood. He opted for a smaller part as Burson Fouch, a plant-eating man in a movie about a man-eating plant. The part of Seymour went to Corman mainstay Jonathan Hayes, Jackie Joseph played the malaprop ingenue Audrey, and Mel Wells was Gravis Mushnick, owner of the flower shop. Screenwriter Charles Griffith is not only the voice of Audrey Jr., but he also plays an ill-fated robber. And his real-life grandmother, Myrtle Vale, plays Seymour's hilariously hypochondriac mother. Jack Nicholson, who is often first billed and prominently displayed on the home video covers of the film, in fact only appears briefly, but memorably, as a masochistic dentist patient. Once the film was completed, Corman had some trouble finding distribution for the film, as some distributors, including AIP, American International Pictures, felt that some of the references in the script may be perceived as anti-Semitic. Some of the cast, namely Mel Wells, who himself was Jewish, defended the movie's humor as more lighthearted and playful, rather than offensive. After facing difficulty, Corman was finally able to release the movie nine months after its completion, via his own company, The Film Group. Released as part of a double bill with Mario Bava's Black Sunday, Little Shop received good notices and was re-released the following year as a double feature with Corman's own The Last Woman on Earth. And though not in competition, the film also had the honor of being screened at the Cannes Film Festival in 1960. The movie continued its legacy into the 1980s, when Alan Menken and Howard Ashman adapted the story into a splashy stage musical. It became a huge hit on Broadway and the London stage, and spawned a big expensive film version, which, like its low-budget inspiration, garnered a cult following of its own after initially doing somewhat dismal business at the box office upon its original theatrical release back in 1986. It's since become a favorite film musical with many adoring fans. Back in the day, especially with low-budget small films, copyrights weren't always pursued. It was assumed that most movies would play one theatrical run and then never really be seen again. No one in the 50s and 60s expected a whole market of video and DVD coming along, especially where small, cheap movies were concerned. Hence why, to this day, so many of these films are widely available, to various degrees of quality, on home video and even YouTube. This lack of copyright caused Corman to only profit marginally from the success of the stage version of Little Shop, as well as the release of the film. Many hoops had to be run through to get some kind of retribution to Corman and friends. A deal was eventually struck, but one which could have been much more profitable had the source material been copyrighted. I came to be a fan of Roger Corman via Little Shop of Horrors, and I came to his original version via the musical movie remake. I saw the musical in cinemas upon its release in 1986 and fell head over heels in love with it. I became curious when finding out that it was based on a low-budget cult film. I was only 12 or 13 at the time but I was already a full-on movie geek. I was passionate about movies at a young age. Now, due to the musical's wide release, the video of Little Shop was now readily available for cheap. Now, bad quality video transfers due to the fact that the movie was in public domain. When I finally got my hands on it and I saw the film, I was shocked at how cheaply made it was. The big impressive puppet plant compared to the humble, non-moving one of the 1960 version 
wasn't sure at that time that I got or understood the humor. But there was something about it I found fascinating in its low budget. I viewed it again and again, multiple times in fact, and I came to not only understand the irreverent jokes, but also the overall tone and execution. Through this, I became very curious about other Corman films, and the rest of that year, into the summer, I delved into getting my hands on every film of his I could, or any literature about him. I became a full-on Roger Corman fan, and still am to this day. Back to the film. I find the screenplay to be rather irreverent and very funny, and delightfully morbid for its time. There's also great performances in the film. Jonathan Hayes as Seymour is both lovable and relatable. The lovely Jackie Joseph is charming and unassuming in her only Corman film. And Mel Wells is hilarious as the bad-tempered Mr. Mushnick. Also, everyone from the supporting roles to the bit players are superbly cast. Dick Miller is predictably top-notch. Leola Wendorf affectionately nails the Jewish grieving stereotype as the appropriately named Mrs. Shiva. Myrtle Vale is very funny as Seymour's med-loving mother, and even tiny parts like the sassy waitress played by Dodie Drake and a president of a flower society played by Lynn Story are all on point. The Yiddish references are funny without being offensive. They are more affectionate than anything, as are the clever character names, Wilberforce, Mrs. Hortense Fishthwanger, and Joe Fink, among others. Little Shop hasn't lost any of its charm. And even with the following that its musical counterpart has amassed through the years, the original is still respected and heralded as a true cult classic. The lack of budget doesn't make it a bad movie as some have erroneously assumed. In fact, it's a great little movie, and its minimalist aesthetic is part of its undeniable charm. Little Shop may have used the same blueprint as a bucket of blood, but it manages to stand on its own two feet with its own comedic personality. This film, along with Bucket of Blood, Roger Corman and Charles Griffith put a unique and original stamp on the black comedy formula, proving that clever writing and quick but effective direction trumps budget every time. father's world, Mr. Barnett. The shrieking of mutilated victims became the music of his life. The blood of a thousand men and women was spilled within these walls. Limbs twisted and broken. Flesh burned black. Starring <laughs> Vincent Price, truly a master of the macabre. John Carr in a challenging role. Barbara Steele, more blood-chilling than in Black Sunday. And introducing taunting Luana Anders. Nicholas. Is that you? Elizabeth? While we were up here mourning her, she was alive. Struggling to be free. You are lying, sir. The Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe cycle began with the fall of the House of Usher. Corman had been shooting low-budget black-and-white fare on a five- to seven-day shooting schedule until that point. He wanted to try something different, 
so we approached the execs at AIP, American International Pictures, and requested to make a color film with a 15-day shooting schedule. Instead of releasing two cheap features on a double bill, he planned to release one higher-budget color feature to be released as a standalone picture. They agreed, and his first endeavor was an adaptation of the Edgar Allan Poe short story The Fall of the House of Usher. With a bigger, if still conservative budget, the film was more sumptuous and richer than anything else Corman had done until that point. It also marked his first collaboration with Vincent Price. The movie was a bona fide hit, and AIP immediately had Corman going to work on a follow-up feature. The Pit and the Pendulum was the result. Popular sci-fi and horror writer Richard Matheson was commissioned to write the screenplay. Poe's original story was, of course, a mere few pages in length, and in no way adaptable in its brief format for a feature-length picture. Matheson used a short story about a man's harrowing experience at the mercy of a torture device during the Spanish Inquisition as a third-act climax of a fuller 80-minute horror tale. He included general elements and themes explored in other post stories to build a suspenseful pastiche of deceit, fear, and mayhem in a dank 16th-century Spanish castle. Vincent Price was once again cast in the lead as the disturbed nobleman Nicholas Medina. Luana Anders, a veteran of past and future Corman films, as Nicholas's supportive sister Catherine. Barbara Steele plays Nicholas's deceitful wife Elizabeth. John Carr as her unsuspecting brother and pendulum near victim Francis Barnard. And Anthony Carbone as the scheming Dr. Leon. Daniel Haller, who was the set designer for nearly all of Corman's Poe films, created the castle settings on various sound stages at Raleigh Studios. He did not build anything from scratch, however, due to the budget limitations, but rather pieced together the set from various pieces he rented or borrowed from other studios in Hollywood. The pendulum, however, was indeed built for the film, complete with a metalized blade covered with steel paint. Filming took 15 days at an approximate cost of $300,000. Due to the ability of having time for pre-production and even a day of rehearsals for the actors, the shoot went smoothly and in a timely manner. Upon its release, the film garnered mostly positive reviews and was a box office hit, outperforming the success of House of Usher. It has since gone on to become a full-fledged horror classic and the most well-remembered and infinitely influential entry of the Corman Post cycle. I was entranced by the film on the very first viewing. There are many impressive factors to the movie which still hold up to this day. Chief among them is Richard Matheson's clever, haunting screenplay. The tension and exposition is intertwined flawlessly. It keeps the audience guessing and packs a wallop with its twist ending. It's a difficult task to flesh out a very short tale into a gripping, scary screen story but Matheson manages to do it flawlessly. Even from his original ideas, the story he created retains the flavor of the Edgar Allan Poe aesthetic. Corman's direction is once again a key factor of success. He expressed that he was able to finally experiment movement with his camera and to try setups which had more grandeur to them than he had previously been privy to. What he began doing in The House of Usher finds its stride in The Pit and the Pendulum creating mood, style, and substance on a low budget, 
and having a finished product which rivaled bigger pictures produced with a lot more money. He also brought his personal views about the subconscious mind into his imagery, never burdening the viewer with anything heavy-handed, but rather keeping it under the surface and in the shadows. I also really appreciate that he does not rush the movie. In fact, the pace is quite deliberate, taking its time to build suspense in the most effective of ways. He also crafts his tense pendulum finale with cinematic panache, taking the suspense to breathless levels. Like the House of Usher, the pit in the pendulum is also sparsely populated as far as characters, with only five main protagonists. And here, we have an excellent cast. As the anchor, we of course have the great Vincent Price. He has been often accused of being hammy, playing both Nicholas Medina and his own sadistic father in flashbacks. But his grandiose performance fits the material well. There's a passion to it, and even a very subtle tongue-in-cheek aspect. He's a master of delivery, and also of understanding what a portrayal steeped in dramatic suspense entails. There's a reason why he's forever remembered as an icon of horror. John Carr is used mostly as an observer, but he is effective, particularly in his scenes during the tense pendulum climax. I really like Luana Anders as Medina's caring sister, although she's young enough to be his daughter. She's understated, which works well alongside the more colorful Price. It strikes a good balance, and she makes the most of a character who could have merely disappeared by the wayside. Vincent Carbone, another character actor from the Corman stable, is good and convincing as the assumed doctor friend of the Medinas, who turns out to be anything but. And the magnificent Barbara Steele is at her iconic best as a presumed dead but really alive and purely evil Elizabeth. Much like Price, Steele has a spot-on understanding of how to perform horror, and she's at her best here in what is essentially a featured cameo. Her voice, however, is that of another actress. After shooting the film, Corman found her obvious British accent to be out of sync with the other's lack of one, so he had her dialogue dubbed over for its final release by an American actress. There are some unique experimental aspects of the film which also render it of interest, especially for its time. The music by Les Baxter, who had previously scored The House of Usher, has the classic orchestral flourishes typical of the era, but also contains some haunting modern musical segments which enhance the already off-kilter mood. The flashbacks are also handled with original visual flair by cinematographer Floyd Crosby. Corman intended the flashbacks to be like dream imagery and to convey the trauma of the character's experience. With tilted angles, hyper-coloring, and stark narration, they are executed very effectively. It's hard to believe that art director Daniel Haller's impressive castle setting is essentially a patchwork of previously existing pieces. He does an amazing job creating a grand, genuinely creepy environment. His pendulum dungeon set is also extremely impressive, enhanced by some classic matte painting work. From the quiet, unsettling aura of the title sequence to the striking final shot of Elizabeth's shocked eyes inside the Virgin of Nuremberg, the pit and the pendulum earns its reputation as a Roger Corman classic and a staple in the canon of horror movies. She was not alone, with my own hands. I 
Starring Boris Karloff. Take this gun. Escort this gentleman from the castle. If he resists, kill him. The terror, his evil mystic powers go beyond man's wildest imaginings. Terror, empowered to avenge, to reward, to transform. I do love you. Is she a blood and flesh beauty a man can enjoy? The Terror is perhaps the most delightfully notorious flick in the Corman filmography. Andre, a Napoleonic officer who, while separated from his regiment, meets a mysterious woman who leads him to the castle of the eccentric Baron von Lepp where danger and supernatural occurrences await. The history behind the film is actually more fascinating than anything it actually achieves on the screen. During a rainy Sunday afternoon, Roger Corman had planned to play tennis, but his game got rained out. It was then, with not much to do around his house, that he came up with the idea of filming a quickie horror film on the existing sets of The Raven, the film he was about to finish shooting. He requested that the sets be kept standing for an additional three days, and offered Boris Karloff, who was one of the three leads in The Raven, a bit of extra money to stay on and play a role in the film. Corman contacted Leo Gordon to write the script, and also hired Jack Nicholson, who was also a cast member of The Raven, to play the lead of the film. With just a basic sketch of an idea, the interiors with Karloff were shot in three days as the sets were being torn around the camera crew. Karloff stated that he would be filmed coming down one hallway, then change jackets and be filmed walking the opposite direction. He was also subjected to hours of difficult filming in a tank of cold water, which he claimed, rather theatrically, that it almost killed him. Well, he was frail and old by this time. Corman then assigned Francis Ford Coppola to some additional days of shooting in the Big Sur area of California. An intended three days of location work turned into 11 Coppola moved on, and Jack Hill was brought in to fill in the gaps in the script and to try to make cohesive sense of the footage shot by both Corman and Coppola. Supplementary scenes were written by Hill, and Monty Hellman was now brought in to direct those scenes. By this time, a few additional characters were weaved into the storyline. Corman stalwarts Dorothy Newman, Dick Miller, and Jonathan Hayes joined the cast in the roles of a revenge-seeking witch, a faithful butler, and a mysterious mute. Also on hand, playing the manipulated ingenue Ilsa slash Helene, was the beautiful Sandra Knight, Jack Nicholson's then-wife, who incidentally was pregnant at the time of filming. It's been said that Nicholson himself, in fact, directed some scenes of the film also. With so many cooks in the kitchen, each with a different interpretation of an already erratic script, it's not surprising that the film was already a confusing mess before it was even finished. Trying to add a last-minute twist to the already convoluted story, Corman added a final monologue where Dick Miller explains a far-fetched plot turn, explaining that the Baron von Lepp was in actuality the jilted lover of Ilsa, named Eric, who went insane and assumed a Baron's identity. The movie was eventually edited, as well as can be expected. Reviews were not favorable upon its release, 
and didn't garner much as far as accolades or box office receipts. But the film's notorious reputation and fascinating backstory have slowly built a cult of sorts through the years. It was one of the last horror films to star Boris Karloff, even though he kept working for a few years after. Scenes from the film were also recycled on other Corman-produced movies. In Peter Bogdanovich's Targets, also starring Karloff, moments from the terror stand in as a drive-in movie starring the main character in the story. The film also makes appearances in Hollywood Boulevard, directed by Joe Dante and Alan Arkish. As with many Corman films, the terror fell into public domain and was sold on VHS in crappy quality for many, many years. In the 1990s, in order to regain the copyright on the film, Corman hired Dick Miller once more to shoot a pre-title sequence which would be used as a new introduction to the story, framing the whole film as a flashback, much in the same way that was done with The Pit and the Pendulum when extra footage was shot to pad the movie's running time for network TV airings. This was done for the French release of the film. As for me, the terror holds a special place in my heart. It was one of the first movies I ever purchased, period, on my own on VHS. It was part of a video cassette that also contained Dementia 13, another favorite Corman-produced film we will discuss at a later date. I was just getting into horror movies and finding my Corman fascination at that age, and I already had a soft spot for creepy castles, the time period in which it took place, and general appreciation for low-budget flicks. Believe me, I was as confused as everyone else, if not more, by what the hell was going on in the story. I distinctly remember I bought it at Kmart for something like $8. The quality was bad, really bad, but this was the 80s and I was just glad I had these films to watch. And I watched it quite a few times, having my younger sister sit through it with me numerous times. Nowadays, she also happens to have good memories associated with the film. Many years later, I finally got my hand on a beautiful print of the film on a reputable DVD. And that's when I truly realized just how awful the quality of the video I practically wore out had been. Now, it's unfair to disregard the film entirely, however. Believe it or not, there are some genuinely rewarding aspects to it. I've seen it enough times to know. The cinematography, especially in the first 10 minutes or so of the film, is actually quite striking, making a wonderful use of the beautiful beaches of Big Sur. The sumptuous score by Ronald Stein is unexpectedly impressive. For a low-budget quick film, the majestic music recorded by a full symphonic orchestra is quite a feat, and extremely effective. I cannot quite convey how much Stein's musical score positively enhances the film itself. As an aside, I highly recommend getting your hands on a CD called Not of This Earth, The Film Music of Ronald Stein, which contains many pieces of Stein's film music, including selections from this movie. The remaining sets of The Raven are used to great effect, even if they were clearly recycled. As far as the acting goes, Boris Karloff is flawless. Even when working with a pedestrian script, he is able to perform at the height of his ability. He's so good, it's almost scary. Jack Nicholson has intermittent moments of his future charisma shining through, but his line delivery leaves a bit to be desired. It's interesting that besides his good looks and occasional charm, there isn't much here to suggest he would become one of our greatest legendary actors. Dick Miller is always reliable and committed, as the all-knowing butler Stefan but the handsome and versatile Jonathan Hayes is given little to do as the witch's reluctant mute assistant, Gustav. 
And of note, it's actually pretty amusing to hear Nicholson's very American pronunciation of both these French names. He pronounces Gustav as Gustav and Stefan as Stefan. Dorothy Newman, a veteran character actress from the golden age of Hollywood, as well as a handful of other Corman movies, plays Katrina the Heretic with adequate relish. Not much is mentioned about Sandra Knight whenever the film is talked about, but even though she's given minimal depth as a character, she's both beautiful and captivating as the mysterious Helene slash Ilsa. She appeared in a few other cheapies, namely the exceptionally silly Frankenstein's Daughter, which is actually tons of fun to watch if you can get your hands on it. Amidst the seemingly relentless scenes of characters walking in and out of hallways, there are actually some genuinely creepy moments of dread that seep in even if they are few and far between. Look, the film is a mess, no doubt about it. Its lack of cohesiveness can actually be jarring at times. However, I kind of think that this folly is part of its charm. Especially in this age where nostalgia of creepy castle movies of the past bring a warmth to the heart of vintage horror fans everywhere. And knowing the entertaining backstory of how the film came to be make the viewing more fun than it should be. Well, this wraps up our first installment of Wild Angel, the films of Roger Corman. Make sure to tune in next time when we'll take a look at some other classic Corman work. I'm your host, Manuel Canary, and until next time, keep those hungry plants fed and keep your buckets full of blood. Mm-hmm.